0: In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he touched my mouth with it, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin forgiven. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people people fat and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn again, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities be waste without inhabitant, and houses without man, and the land become utterly waste, and the Lord have removed men far away, and the forsaken places be many in the midst of the land. And if there be yet a tenth in it, it also shall in turn be eaten up. As a terebinth, and as an oak, whose stock remaineth when they are felled, so the holy seed is the stock thereof. This evening we come to one of the best-loved portions of God's Word, the book of Isaiah, and, of course, to the first book of the last division in our arrangement of the Old Testament, the prophetical books. This section, this division of the Old Testament, comprises seventeen books, sixteen of which are strictly prophetical, and one... Is the uh, the other is the book of Lamentations, the little uh, book of Lamentations, which is really, actually, strictly speaking, poetical. It belongs really to the poetical section. We have seventeen uh, books in this last division of our Old Testament, and of the sixteen prophets. Of these 16 prophetical books, four are called major prophets and twelve are called minor prophets. Of course, there's no such thing as a major prophet and a minor prophet. Um, They are called the four major prophets uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel because of their length, and the twelve minor prophets are called minor just because, again, of their length. It's not a question of their message or of their position or of their function. It is a question of how much we've actually got in the Word of God. We call them the four major uh, prophets and the twelve minor prophets. The rabbis uh, brought the twelve minor prophets uh, uh, together and made them into one book. They called it the one book of the twelve prophets. Well, really, one's heart almost fails as we come to a book like the book of Isaiah. Um, when you consider something of its message and somehow or other the greatness and the grandeur of its conception, it's really um, it's overwhelming uh, when first you start to approach it. And I expect we shall be taking three evenings upon this book of Isaiah. This evening I want just very simply to um, say a few words about the prophetical books, this division in general, and then a few introductory words about Isaiah, and then tackle, if we have time and ability, the authorship and the date of the book of Isaiah, and then the background of Isaiah. By the way, for those of you who are following all this carefully, we are going to expand our outline uh, of each book in this section, Uh, whereas up to now we've been taking a a fourfold outline, first the authorship and date, secondly the key, thirdly the outline, and fourthly the message, uh, we will, in these uh, prophetical books, be including one further. And that will be the background of, the, uh, of each book. It's very, very important for us to get some idea of the background of the particular prophet, where he lived, uh, the times in which he ministered, any influences that may have had a formative influence upon him, and um, so on. <coughs> now, a few general words about the prophetical book. They are not in chronological order. Uh, In their arrangement as we have them in our uh, Bible, they are not uh, actually strictly in historical uh, sequence. They cover in all a period of some 400 years, and they fall into three major groups. Uh, The first is... um, what we call the Assyrian period, the period of the Assyrian uh, uh, ascendancy, and we find in that period the prophet's Joel. Mm. Joel is probably the first of all. There's great controversy as to whether Joel was actually the first or the last, but um, we will wait till we come to him. Um, We've put him as the very first of the prophets um, here in this section. And then he was followed, Joel was followed by uh, uh, um, Isaiah and Micah, and then Nahum, Amos, Jonah, and uh, Hosea. These prophets belong to the Assyrian period. They ministered during the period of the Assyrian uh, ascendancy. And then we have the next group, which we can call the Babylonian period, and that is Habakkuk and Obadiah, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. These uh, four ministered in the Babylonian period. And then lastly, the third uh, group is the Persian period, and in that period we have um, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Some people would, of course, say that Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel really strictly belong to the Babylonian period, because particularly um, uh, Jeremiah is in the Babylonian period, but Ezekiel is very much linked with Jeremiah, and we're not really quite clear as to exactly where to place him. But I have put him into the Persian period because it seems to me that he is so closely linked with the prophet Daniel. And with that whole section uh, there. (coughs) So we find that these prophets fall into three uh, loose groups according to time. The first, the Assyrian, the second, the Babylonian, and the third, the Persian. (coughs) We must not, of course, uh, make the mistake of confining a prophecy to the prophetical books. Um, In actual fact, uh, the prophet and prophecy um, uh, make their appearance in the word of God at the very beginning. And right through the whole record of the word of God, we discover that prophecy occupies a quite large place. For instance, you find Abraham prophesies. Uh, later on, you will find that M- Moses is looked upon as the prophet of the Lord prophet like unto me the Lord will raise up, he says, in one place. Aaron was looked upon as the priest, and Moses was looked upon as the prophet. These two uh, linked together at the very beginning of the nation's history. But it was not until the time of Samuel that the prophet was recognized as a distinct and clear order alongside of the priest. It, it is a very, very interesting study, into which we will not be going this evening, the whole gradual blossoming of the prophetic order, if you like to call it that. How from, from slow, quiet, hidden beginnings it came in the end to be the most dominating influence in the life of God's people, superseding that of the priest by far. And, and that of the king, so that in the end, at the end of Old Testament history, we find the prophet is left absolutely supreme. He, he occupied the most influential position of all. The earlier prophets, it is very interesting to note, did not commit their message to writing. Uh, we have quite a number of them. Of course, Moses committed much to writing. But um, Samuel, for instance, we have no record of of his messages, though he was a prophet of the Lord, and indeed, we believe, he was the great pioneer in founding and establishing what came to be known as the schools of the prophets. I think if you cast your mind back to our studies uh, on the first book of Samuel, you will remember what a tremendously um, deep and abiding influence Samuel had upon the life of God's people, particularly in the question of um, the literary side. Nevertheless, Samuel, we have no real messages of Samuel left to us. A few fragments we have in the first book of Samuel, and that is all. And then we have Elijah. Think of, of that great ministry of Elijah. And yet you know we have hardly anything of the ministry of Elijah looked upon by, by the Jewish Jews as one of the greatest of their prophets, and yet we have no real written record of his ministry. And then Elisha, there's another ministry that was never committed to writing. And if we um, consider others before Elijah and Elisha, we can think of Nathan and Gad, and we can think of many other prophets whose whole ministry was in the spoken word. The later prophets, however, Uh, began to commit their message to writing. And this has marked one of the most uh, remarkable departures in the word of God. Um, For instance, you see, Isaiah was not being um, taken down in shorthand. Uh, He, in actual fact, um, wrote his message out. He either gave it and then wrote it out, or he wrote it out and then gave it. But it is quite clear that the later prophets were, for many of them, literary figures of some standing, and indeed, in one or two instances, it would seem—and we sh- we shall wait till we come to them to make further comment on it—but it would seem in one or two instances that the message was never actually preached, but was committed to the word, uh, to, to the written, into the written word. And that's a most interesting factor in those who have any real appreciation of the written and printed word um, as a medium of God's expression, the expression of God's mind and purpose. Even right back in the Old Testament days, um, we find this um, uh, great move towards placing the oracles of God into a definitely uh, written uh, uh, form. Well, mm, those are just one or two facts about the prophetical books. Uh, we we might just mention one or two things uh, further. Uh, the what really uh, what real um, place do the do the prophetical books hold in the whole uh, arrangement? in the Old Testament. You remember, we have often spoken of the Pentateuch, the first five books, as being the foundation of God's Word, and the historical books that follow as being the structure that the Holy Spirit builds upon it. You know, the more I study the Word of God, the more convinced I become that every single major principle is contained in the first five books of God's Word. Everything. The rest of the Bible is but the development of what you find in the first five words. Everything is found there to the very end of the, of the Word of God. It's either found in a hidden, inferred, or implied form, but it's there. The historical section, the historical division, is but the drawing out of, of those principles and the beginning to the express, the expression of them in acts, in life, in lives, and in acts, in definite historical events. You know, some people think prophecy is confined to a man speaking, as it were, on a platform. But prophecy, in its essential nature, is not only what is spoken on a platform, it can be in actual events enacted. You see, the whole flight of Joseph into Egypt, he's being placed in a dungeon, and then he's being raised up to the very right hand of uh, the Pharaoh, is prophetic in itself. We have no written ministry uh, of Joseph, but all that his life, all that was enacted in his life is in itself prophetic. And the historical books, those that follow on from Joshua right through to um, Esther, are the expression of all that we have In the first five books, in events, historical events, in lives, and so on. All the time we're being taken back to, to those first five books, and lessons are being underlined all the time. And then we have looked at the poetical section of the Old Testament, and we have looked at each book, and we have discovered that the poetical section is like the furnishings of the house. The inward character, um, as it were, the need of something to make a home. You know, you can have a foundation, you can have walls, you can have partitions, and you can have a roof, but that's not a home. A home has got something more inside of it. You don't just have a floor, a roof, and walls, and then you've got a home. You've got to have something inside that creates an atmosphere that somehow or other makes it home. And the poetical books are just that. They are the inward character, the intimate inward character that alone um, really uh, satisfies God. And now we come to the prophetical division. And what is the prophetical division? The prophetical division is, as it were, the top stone of the Old Testament. It is the consummation of it. And as we would therefore expect It is the clearest and most lucid expression of God's mind in the Old Testament. Um, The prophet was, without any exception, in every case, a man who saw or men who saw right through to the heart of a matter. It didn't matter whether it was national. It didn't matter whether it was personal. It didn't matter what kind of matter it was. They saw by the eye of the Spirit right through to the the principle of the thing. And when they put their finger on it by the Holy Spirit, they fearlessly, fearlessly proclaimed what they discovered. And uh, And that is the value of the prophetical books. You see, if we didn't have the prophetical books, we could deceive ourselves over a lot of things we could somehow lull ourselves into sleep about all kinds of things in the other books. And uh, we wouldn't have that rude awakening and shock that comes from suddenly being faced by Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the others with a thundering, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. You have built on such and such a scripture and you have completely missed the point. Now I say, this is what you should do, and this is the meaning of that particular point. Do you understand? Now that's the real um, function of the prophetical books of the Old Testament. We have a tremendous wealth now of revelation. You look back, those of you particularly who have been here from the, very, from the very beginning of these days, you look right back now to Genesis, think of the wealth that we've got. Cut out the prophetical. books. Pretend that they're not there. Just think of the wealth that we've got as you run your mind through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua and Judges and Ruth and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and then on through Job. Think of the wealth in the book of Job. And then the Psalter. Think of the wealth. And then the Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes, and then the Song of Solomon. Do we need anything more? Have we not got everything that that we require? Isn't that absolute wealth, spiritual wealth, contained in those books? But the Holy Spirit has felt it necessary to add another 27 books to the arrangement. And without exception, all these books go right back over the others. And in the clearest and the most lucid way, they express the mind of God upon all kinds of situations, whether national or international, or whether they're personal. You take a prophet like like Daniel. Do you know that Daniel saw right, right down from his time, right the way on down to the Roman era, And right to the end of the Roman era, as far as Daniel was concerned, it might shock some, but we are all included in the Roman era. We are all still in in what Daniel would have called Roman civilization. The product of it and the end of it. But he saw the whole thing right down to the very end. And he's got a tremendous amount to say to us about every particular phase and all the great build-up from these great world, uh, empires, and cultures uh, as they gradually build up into one colossus at the end. Well, Daniel's only one. Uh, What about Isaiah? There's no man like Isaiah for seeing the whole scheme of the purpose of God, more so than Daniel in some ways. Daniel was essentially prophetic in events. Uh, Isaiah was not so. He did not um, just uh, define uh, the civilizations that were to succeed and what was going to happen and so on. Isaiah saw the purpose of God. That's the thing that he saw. And saw the whole scheme of the purpose of God to the end, how it was to be accomplished. He saw more clearly than anyone else how it was to be accomplished isaiah fifty three is the great the great vision of the accomplishment of the purpose of God. Well, you see, you see these are the prophetical books in actual fact, we've got it all before ever we come to Isaiah, but the Holy Spirit has felt it necessary. Uh, to speak through the prophet at different crises in the history of God's people and to speak loudly and clearly with authority. So we have got to remember all this as we come to the uh, prophetical books. But one further word about the prophet and prophecy. You know... We must bear in mind, I hardly think it's necessary to say it here because we've said it so many times in different words, but we must ever bear in mind that the prophet is not some mystic wrapped in crystal gazing. There are some people who've got an idea that somehow or other the prophet was someone who perhaps, even if he didn't have a crystal, was nevertheless there with a kind of cloth over his head and gazing into something in a monastic way, hidden away from life hidden away from practical routine, far uh, removed from anything that was humdrum and ordinary, and there he listened, and in the lovely stillness he saw all kinds of things and heard all kinds of things. But you know, in actual fact, the prophet is the most intensely practical and sensitive and down-to-earth type that we could find in the Old Testament. You know, the prophet didn't didn't spare his punches. When when it came to it, uh, they could could rip aside uh, a facade in an instant, and if necessary, say in almost crude language, what they were getting at. You know, there are some things in the book of Ezekiel that we cannot actually study, because he gets down to some things and gets right down to the heart of it and is not afraid to say it in ordinary, plain, sometimes almost sensual terms because he's speaking to people <coughs> who will not understand it unless he speaks in their language. Oh no, the prophet is not some mystic wrapped in crystal gazing, removed from life. He, he is right in life. You take Hosea, you, you know the story of Hosea Uh, We would call him at one point almost a divorcee. That's the kind of person Hosea was. That's the kind of background Hosea was. And you can find again and again uh, in Scripture this kind of thing as far as the prophet is concerned. He is a man who in, in his own life is very much tied down to practical situations and very much in touch with the generation in which he lives. He is not just wrapped up with generations in the far future, and, or as many people think, looking off and seeing them all, how lovely, forgetting everything around him. No, the prophet was not like that at all. In his own present-day circumstances and generation in touch with them in living touch with them sensitive to their need and sensitive above all to the need of the lord amongst them he not only saw what was wrong there and saw through it to what god was going to do but he saw beyond it into the future and so you see really the prophet is a singular uh, ministry Prophecy is a singular ministry, a remarkable ministry. They combined in themselves a, a, a number of offices. You know, you must not just think of, of prophets as some weird fanatic that came out of the, out of the desert uh, and then vanished back into it. There are one or two like that. But um, on the whole, it's very far removed. As we study the prophets, I trust as we go through, we shall discover that some were very different types of men. You cannot... You cannot tie down the prophet to any particular type. You take the man we, we trust to get you to tonight, Isaiah. What, a, what an entirely different man he was, for instance, to John the Baptist or Elijah. I've no doubt they would have had the sweetest and, and most beautiful fellowship together, but they were entirely different people with entirely different backgrounds and an entirely different outlook. Isaiah with his softness and his royal blood and his cultured background and Elijah with his strong uh, Gilead background up in the crags and the rocks with the goats and the sheep. Oh, they're all different. As you see, Uh, uh, we have got to... Uh, remember that these men were not, in all their difference, they combined in themselves the most remarkable functions. They were not just preachers. They were not only preachers, they were teachers. And they were not only teachers, they were reformers. And they were not only reformers, but they were statesmen. And not only statesmen, but they were heralds. They combined within themselves remarkable functions many of the prophets, for instance, were influential in the government of their day. You take a man like Jeremiah. You take a man like Jeremiah. Even the might of Babylon took note of Jeremiah and listened to him. You take a man like Daniel. The Persian Empire was headed by such a man. For almost uh, influenced by such a man. No, you see, the, these, these prophets, uh, you, you must get out of your mind some of our uh, Sunday school memories of them as being wild, woolly men uh, that sort of came out of the back country and uh, sort of pounded uh, things. Now, it is true that in the most remarkable way, when God needed such a man, such a rustic type of man, he produced such a man and Elijah is one of them, and John the Baptist is another, uh, and you, we, we could mention others as well. Micah, for instance, the contemporary of Isaiah, was his country, uh, one dear, I think it was Spurgeon actually, uh, called him his country bumpkin cousin. Um, it was Micah, a used of God, as greatly as Isaiah, because no doubt the, the, the peasant folk of the countryside just shook their heads when Isaiah spoke but I have no doubt that they listened with ears wide open to what Micah had to say to them. Well, there we are. You see, um, these men always appeared at points of national crisis, and they were always qualified uh, by the Holy Spirit to step into the breach. In every single instance, they stepped into the breach. They knew they were speaking, uh, by the Spirit of God, and they were conscious that they themselves had not seen the full significance of what they were saying. I do not belong to that school of thought that thinks that the prophets uh, um, didn't understand anything they were saying. They just said things that they had no idea what they meant or what their significance was. I believe that the Lord Jesus was, was, uh, was right when he said that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. And I believe it's true also what Paul said, that uh, the gospel was preached to Abraham. These men had far greater understanding than some of the, some of us will give to them. I have no doubt that if they were here, they might teach us one or two things uh, about the gospel uh, and the and the purpose of God, especially present-day Christians. Um, but the the point we are making is this that that although they undoubtedly knew and saw something, they did not understand the full significance of what they were saying. Um, they must have known that there was a, a far greater fulfillment of their word than they had conceived of. And this is contained or implied almost in that scripture of Pe- in Peter's letter when he says that they they inquired diligently of what time uh, it, it would be uh, this salvation uh, and it was revealed to them that it was not to themselves but to us that they were speaking so they really had a far greater knowledge than we realize, even if they didn't have the f- understand uh, uh, did not understand the full significance of what they said prophecy is not foretelling as we have often said but forth And there is a vast difference between telling something forth and foretelling something. And some Christians have the idea that prophecy is wholly foretelling. It is not. It is forthtelling. And therefore you will see that prophecy can do with the past and the present as well as the future. When God speaks his mind, on any given event, either it might be in the past, it might be in the present, or it might be defining something in the future. That is prophecy. Teaching is different to that. Teaching is when we define something um, or that uh, is just general, understand, it has no regard to any particular event, we are just deducting, deducing certain principles and defining them and leaving. But the prophet's job was to take a certain situation and to drive home God's lesson on that situation. It might be that he took something in the past. For instance, if we had a prophet today, he might take Dunkirk and he might go to the nation and drive home the lesson of Dunkirk. And he might say to the nation that God says that if they don't learn the lesson of Dunkirk, they're going to be devastated. That's prophecy. But it's all to do with the past. On the other hand, the prophet might come to the country and might say that there is a certain situation in South Africa which if something is not done, the Lord says that so-and-so, 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 and -and and -and so-and-so will result. And that's exactly what would happen. Or it might be that a prophet might rise up and say that if this country doesn't repent within so many years, it will be overrun by some other power and we shall all be put uh, to the sword and so on and so on and so on. That will be prophecy. All those three things are prophecy, whether past, present or future. That's prophecy. It is the mind of God upon, a, or upon a, a, an event, either past, present or sometimes something to do with the future. So we need to uh, uh, note that and to note one other thing about prophecy, too, and that is that sometimes prophecy has a a fulfillment, and yet it has not been fulfilled. One of the most remarkable examples of this is in the prophecy of Malachi when he speaks of the, the messenger of the Lord being sent before the coming of the Lord. And the Lord Jesus himself said, that John the Baptist was here. Was he? He said, "It says there, Elijah shall come." And the Lord Jesus said, "Well, what is it? John the Baptist? Yes, he he is so. But I tell I say unto you that before that greater notable day come, Elijah shall come." So you see, you see, this is one of the most remarkable features of prophecy. That sometimes it can have been, it can have had a fulfilment, and yet still await a much greater. And larger fulfillment. And I'm sure that many of us will be saved an awful lot of trouble uh, with some of the prophecies uh, if we could only understand that not only had they had a certain amount of fulfillment, but they may well yet uh, be waiting for a far greater and more wonderful fulfillment. Now, in our studies of these books, we ought, insofar as we are able, to find out the background and the atmosphere of each particular book. Now, that's why I've put this um, table on the board. It's not mine at all. It is Dr. Graham Um but it's exceedingly good. And uh, there it is on the board for any of you to copy, and I have not completed it. Next week, I will give you the last um, five that belong to the Persian period. But this um, would be helpful to anyone who wants to find out the background of each uh, prophecy and of each prophet. Here is the book, and here is its historical uh, atmosphere, um, its uh, time um, of giving and so on. If you were to read that, the background of that, you'd get some idea of what was happening uh, in the background of each prophet, uh, and it would help you very, very greatly in your understanding of the days in which the prophet was living. Of course, we might say the prophet's task was never popular. The Lord Jesus never said a truer word than when he said, Ye are are those whose fathers have slain the prophets, and you build their sepulchres. It is perfectly true that, as the Lord himself again said in another place, prophet has no honor in his own country. Um, The whole history of the people of God has been one of persecution of the prophet until too late, and then a recognition, of the real value and function of his ministry. Yet, uh, the most remarkable fact remains that they and their words have outlasted everything else. The rest has crumbled, it's passed away, but the prophet and his message remains to this day and will remain to the end of time. Uh, that is a tribute to their influence and what God has done. I don't believe God just takes up um, some instrument cheaply and says something that's going to affect his whole economy and purpose and plan just like that. These prophets had some very deep, had passed through some very deep waters and had been very severely dealt with. By the Holy Spirit before they came to the place where the Lord uh, could use them uh, and speak through them. Let us never think that in any way we can leave a mark upon anything and particularly be in any way an integral part of the purpose of God cheaply. It it, it does not come that way at all. It comes by very deep uh, dealings indeed. Argument and controversy and fantasy and excess have surrounded the whole subject of prophecy, Uh, and I'm afraid even here um, has succeeded in frightening some away from it altogether. Uh, Many of us, I know as a company, uh, we have been very um, uh, timid uh, about approaching the whole subject of prophecy, but here we are uh, tonight on the threshold of these prophetical books, and we've got to face them squarely. But you, you cannot blame us wholly when we've seen the fantasies that have been written on prophecy and the excesses to which people have gone in, this, in their study of prophecy. Uh, you can understand it. Yet, as we have said, uh, prophecy contains the clearest and most detailed revelation of God's mind, of his heart, and of his purpose in Scripture. And it is along that line that we ought to approach it. Not just, um, can, can we find out, as when I was a young Christian, first say, um, some 14 years ago, I remember, I was absorbed by whether Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia were the three ribs in the bear's mouth, and whether Russia was the bear, and uh, all these other things. Oh, how absorbed I was, how thrilled I was with such ideas and such thoughts. Well, maybe there's some value in that, but I think we ought not to approach it along that line, basically. Um, I, even I, and I'm not old, I might say, have outlived some uh, who have told me that Hitler uh, was the Antichrist, and also Mussolini. Uh, Both have gone, uh, and I'm still here, And um, uh, I was also told that Stalin uh, was the Antichrist when the other two went, and uh, he's gone. Uh, So, you see, along that line, I think we've got to be uh, cautious. uh, Cautious. But the line of approach to prophecy that will yield the most lasting and abiding helpfulness and fruitfulness will undoubtedly be along the revelation of God's mind. We can get all tied up in nations and peoples and times of the Gentiles and when they end and when they don't end and uh, all the rest of it to, and miss the real point of the pro- prophetic message. Oh, when you take a book like Isaiah and read some of the dispensational uh, talk that has been written upon it, that this is this and that's the other and this, and then they've lost the whole point of, of, of Isaiah's message. A dwelling place for God, glorious, absolutely glorious, to which the, the, all the nations shall in the end flow. I think that we the, the line of our approach should be uh, uh, um, the the abiding message of each book, uh, what it has to say. Uh, what it reveals of God's mind and heart and purpose. And then, then, and only then, uh, whether there is anything uh, as to nations and times and peoples and and so on, get to the heart of the message first and you'll always, always um, uh, have something that will last with you. Otherwise, uh, if you get the other, uh, well you all the time will have to be changing your mind and looking for the next one uh, on the scene, and so on. So, uh, bear with me in saying all all that. Now, what about Isaiah? Well, Isaiah is certainly the most eloquent of all the prophets. I don't think it needs any single one of you to uh, have to study uh, that. Just you go home and read the prophecies of Isaiah. And I think that the thing that will come out is that he is away and beyond all the others as far as language goes, uh, Isaiah is supreme in literary gift. There are, of course, some explanations for that. His style is marked by majesty on the one side and beauty on the other. I mean, you cannot but marvel the language and the style of Isaiah, especially those last chapters from 40 through to chapter 66. Oh, the language of Isaiah, how majestic it is, and yet not majestic in a pompous way. How beautiful it is, and yet not sentimental. How deeply emotional it is, and yet not the kind that uh, makes you feel bad. Isaiah is uh, is remarkable. His his gifts in uh, in along the literary line are are surpassing. There's nothing disjointed in Isaiah. You try to find something disjointed in Isaiah. There's nothing disjointed in Isaiah. There's nothing unharmonious in Isaiah. There's nothing even poor. Now. This is no disrespect, I trust, but as we go on, we shall discover in one or two prophets uh, quite a a difference. I have no greater regard uh, for any than for the prophet Jeremiah, but I'm afraid I can't say that he's not disjointed. I've never read such a prophet. Uh, But why? Well, we shall understand that when we come to him. But uh, you see, Isaiah is speaking. There's a complete... It's like a Rolls Royce engine. It just purrs, and and his language flows out in the most beautiful way. Well, there we are. Uh, he seems to soar above and beyond all the rest and he undoubtedly laid the foundation for all the other prophets. I'm very interested that Isaiah was given the first place in the prophetic books by the Holy Spirit, because he undoubtedly laid the foundation for all the others that were to come. Uh, many have remarked upon the originality of, of Isaiah. Uh, he, he, his ministry was a complete departure of anything that had come before. Joel is the only as it were, the slight glimmer of the dawn that was to to come with Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is is such a flood of light uh, upon many things. Um, Well, there we are. Uh, It has been said, and truly, that Isaiah 40, and you'll hear a lot about Isaiah 40 to 66 uh, as we go on, um, but it has been said and truly that Isaiah 40 to 66 ranks amongst the greatest and finest literature in the world. I think that is true. There is nothing really so fine and so great as uh, that, those chapters of Isaiah. Now, what about authorship and date? Have we anything we can say about the authorship and the date of this book? I'm sorry that we are descending to technical points, but before we can ever get to the message and the key to the book of Isaiah, we've got to face one or two other points first. Have we any any clue? Well, if you look at Isaiah 1 and verse 1, you will discover that uh, we are clearly told that it is the prophet... Isaiah. This is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It tells us the uh, times in which he saw it in the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of Judah. And for at least 2,500 years. This has been unanimously and unreservedly (coughs) assented to by all, and it has been left to the last hundred years to question uh, the whole book uh, of Isaiah. Nevertheless, the last hundred or hundred and twenty, hundred and fifty years has seen the most unbelievable controversy raging over the book of Isaiah. Um, All scholars agree that Isaiah wrote some of it, so we're very thankful to be able to say that. Uh, They all agree that he wrote some of the book of Isaiah. Um, Many say that um, there are two authors in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah wrote up to chapter 39, and from chapter 40 to the end uh, was written by another. There are others who say that... um, uh, there are three authors in the book of Isaiah. Um, that uh, the Isaiah wrote from 1 to 39, uh, from chapter 40 to 55 was written by another gentleman, and from 56 to 66 was written by yet another. And then there are others who say that the book is just one mass, of different prophecies by different men, all collected under the name of Isaiah. Well, when we look at all that, it just begins to make us uh, wonder. Uh, As I have said, most scholars would agree that Isaiah 1 to chapter 39, that is the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, were indeed written by him. They are the work of Isaiah. But Where the questions begin is with the latter part of Isaiah from chapter 40 to 66. Now, this is the point. In many ways, although we would not say it to to the loss of the the rest of the book, that is the most important part of Isaiah. Uh, From chapter 40 to 66 is his great final, uh, uh, the climax of his ministry. Uh, it's there that there are all the questions. And it's pointed out that Isaiah 41 does not begin with any indication of authorship. It says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, said the Lord. And uh, uh, it's pointed out that therefore um, it may well not be uh, Isaiah. The other chapters belong to Isaiah, but not this. So it has been ascribed to all kinds of people, and we find in all the books that are written on Isaiah things like the great unnamed, is called, and someone else has called him the Babylonian Isaiah, and someone else has called him the, a great prophet of the exile, and uh, the most common term we find of all is, is deutero-Isaiah, the second Isaiah. These are all terms that have come. Uh, to be used over the authorship of this book of Isaiah. Now, where does the descent stem from? What, what, are, what is the basis of this descent? It is threefold. It is this, that in Isaiah chapter 40 to 66, we have three things. First, there is a difference of, difference of standpoint to the rest of the book. They say, how could any prophet actually name a king in the future? He says, behold, Cyrus, my servant. But they say he doesn't say, behold, a servant called Cyrus will arise, but says, behold, Cyrus, my servant, and speaks of him as already there. So they say, obviously, this gentleman lived in the time of Cyrus and uh, spoke of Cyrus as he saw him as the head of the Persian Empire, um, uh, spoke of him as, uh, Behold, Cyrus, my servant. And they say there's a difference of standpoint throughout these last chapters. It speaks of the exile already um, accomplished. It speaks of the people of God scattered to the ends of the earth, and no talk of them being scattered, but being gathered. It takes it for granted that they are to the ends of the earth. And uh, so they, they say this, this is a difference of standpoint. The whole of these last chapters is uh, staged, as it were, in exile, and they say even the customs of Babylonian. Uh, they say it's a very real difference in every way uh, in these last chapters. Then secondly, there is a difference of style. They say, oh, it's quite clear that the last uh, chapters uh, are, are quite uh, different from the first uh, 39 chapters. The style, the words are different, and so on. And thirdly, they say there's a difference of theology, whatever that might mean. But I think it is bound up with this, that uh, the last chapters speak of the servant of the Lord, and he's not mentioned at all in the first 39 uh, they say where did the gentleman get his idea of the servant of the Lord if he wrote the first 39 chapters surely somewhere in he would have referred to the servant of the Lord and surely he would have brought in some of his great themes that we discover in the last chapters so they say there are three things a difference of standpoint of situation of time, place a difference of style and a difference of theology <clears throat> but the argument for the unity of Isaiah and for the authorship of Isaiah far outweighs any argument against it. I have list- listed some of the great and salient points in um, <laughs> uh, 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 what I say? Uh, for the authorship um, of Isaiah. Firstly, until the last century... Uh, there was never a suggestion or a whisper that there was ever another author engaged in the book of Isaiah. I find that very hard and strange to believe that evidently there could have been two or three authors in the book of Isaiah, and never over, over 2,500 years has there been as much as a whisper In every other book where we've got a question about authorship, there is usually some whisper that has persisted down through the years. But here we haven't got a single whisper. All are unanimous. Well, I find that very, very hard to believe. And especially if this uh, gentleman who wrote the last part is called a great prophet of the exile, or someone has pointed out, if he's so great, why don't we know him? A very strange thing that we've got such a great uh, unnamed prophet because, judging by his ministry, he surpasses all the others. Surely his name's not been lost to posterity. That's very hard to believe indeed, especially since the rabbis were so careful to collect the scribes in Ezra's day and later uh, in the rabbis' day, were so careful to collect twelve minor prophets into one book and be careful to distinguish each one by their name. And even when Ezra and Nehemiah, as you know, were one book, yet still we keep the two names, Ezra and Nehemiah. Are we to believe, therefore, that here we have some other gentleman, some other dear brother, some other prophet, who was engaged in, in this work of ministry, and somehow or other we've lost his name altogether. It's vanished. It's very hard to believe. Thirdly, on the question of language and style, it's very interesting that Dr. Bullinger has pointed out that there are many more words and uh, phrases peculiar to both, both halves of the book of Isaiah than peculiar to one. Peculiar only to the book of Isaiah. And peculiar to both halves. Far outweighs any argument about there being a difference uh, in style. There are those who believe the style is the same. Throughout, and then again, one very big argument is this: the whole landscape is uh, that of Palestine, and not of Babylon. Everywhere you look through the through the book of Isaiah, it is the land or the promised land that is spoken of. Parts of the promised land, animals of the promised land, trees of the promised land, and so on. And then again, fifthly. Isaiah, that Isaiah speaks of the future as the present is not strange to prophecy. If people feel that uh, uh, anyone who predicts something going to, happen, going to happen couldn't possibly have done it, uh, but must have lived at the time it happened, well, I find that very, uh, a very strained argument indeed. Uh, it's, a, it's an element of prophecy, that again and again <laughs> something in the future has not only been defined, but has been spoken of as happening. Isaiah is lost in his vision, and he speaks of it as being there, actually there, seeing it being enacted before his very eyes. Now that, I think, is something that we ought to take note of. And then, uh, again, the title, The Holy One. I don't know if you've ever noticed this title in the book of Isaiah, The Holy One of Israel, the Holy One. Do you know it's almost peculiar? the book of Isaiah, that it hardly occurs anywhere else in Scripture. And the wonderful point is this, it occurs as much in the latter half of Isaiah as the first. So evidently, whoever wrote the second half of Isaiah uh, copied uh, very closely the style of the first. Indeed, some, some of the scholars of the critical school have suggested, because of this very fact, they must have been pupils of Isaiah. And then again, the Lord uh, referred to the book of Isaiah four times. Three times he referred to the former part, the first 39 chapters, and once to the last. But in each case, he says, the Spirit speaking through Isaiah, the prophet. 21 times. The book of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament ten times uh, it quotes the first 39 chapters, eleven times it quotes the last uh, chapters, from chapter 40 onwards. And in nearly every instance it speaks of Isaiah the prophet Seth. So that, I think, uh, begins to build up into a very real argument in favor of uh, the authorship of Isaiah. Perhaps you would like to read three um, references um, to that. Matthew chapter 12, verse 17 and 18. Um that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen. That is Isaiah 43. So that's the second half of Isaiah, and the Lord says there, spoken through Isaiah the servant of the Lord. And then in John 12, John 12, verse 38, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? That is Isaiah 53. And lastly, in Romans chapter 10, And verse 20, Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. That is Isaiah 45 and verse 1. So it's obvious at any rate that the writers of the uh, New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul in particular and above all our lo- own Lord Jesus, um, believed uh, uh, that uh, to Isaiah the prophet was the author of the whole book of Isaiah. Now, let us just say this, that the difference of standpoint and the difference of style and the difference of, of theology can be, I think, explained. And I think they can be explained in such a natural way a logical, and reasonable way, uh, so there's no need to strain uh, to answer it. We believe that Isaiah wrote the first prophecies from 1 to 35 in the early days of his ministry. He commenced his ministry in the year that King Isaiah died. And through the years of Jotham and Ahaz, He ministered right through into the days of Hezekiah. It is interesting that many of those prophecies in the first part, first 35 chapters, are tied either to uh, the names of Jotham or of Ahaz. It is interesting that from chapter 36 to 39 deals with the middle part of Hezekiah's reign. You remember when he was besieged by Sennacherib and um, how he besought the Lord and how um, the Lord delivered. It would therefore seem that, you see, the last part, the last chapters of Isaiah belong to the last years of Isaiah's ministry. And when we remember that Isaiah had a long life and probably lived to anything up to 80 or 90, and uh, exercised a public ministry for probably something like 60 years, we begin to understand this whole question of difference of, of, for instance, style is quite explicable, quite explicable. And when we begin to see that the phrases and words and basically the style, as so many scholars have pointed out, are the same in the first and the last part, we begin, I think, to simply see that it's quite explicable along the line of it being uh, the the first being when Isaiah was a younger man uh, in the early part of his ministry, and the last being when he was an older man and the uh, closing days of his ministry. Uh, You know, it's interesting if that is so. It's not only that the Talmud says that that is so, and the Jewish tradition unhesitatingly uh, uh, ascribes to that. But you know, it, it, it would be most interesting in many ways if when Isaiah was young, when he first saw the Lord in the temple, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and saw his train filling the temple, and when he heard the Lord, all that he saw, from that day, you know, he called the Lord the Holy One. The thing that struck him was the holiness of the Lord. And you remember how he cried. He said he heard the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. From that day to the end of his ministry, he had referred again and again to the Lord of the Holy of, of Israel. The impressions that were made then were lasting. And you will note too that it was a remnant. Uh, that uh, uh, was impressed upon the young heart and spirit of Isaiah. Uh, He said, you will go to a people, and in speaking they will not uh, understand, in hearing they will not hear, in seeing they will not see, their heart is heavy and dull. But you are to go. And though in the end everything is devastated and everything is scattered and dispersed, yet when all is felt, there will still be the stump of the tree, and that stump is the holy seed, the remnant. And it's interesting that as Isaiah begins his ministry, he speaks, you know, he sees right through many situations. He sees through the superficial worship of his day. He sees people who are serving the Lord, and he sees that it's all superficial. He, he takes them to task for all their luxury and luxury, and and wealth and prosperity, and yet and yet nothing really for the Lord. And then he he sees the Lord's various judgments upon the nations. But Isaiah thirty five ends with a remnant returning. You know that wonderful chapter thirty five of Isaiah. When the wilderness blossoms as a rose, and the redeemed of the Lord return with everlasting joy upon their heads. He sees uh, it's his ministry, see. But when you come to chapter 40, if that indeed belongs to the last years of his ministry and the end of his life, oh, what a lot of ground has been covered by Isaiah. How much deeper the whole thing has gone. Now he sees, he sees, oh, what does he see? He sees the ministry of a forerunner. He sees the ministry of the suffering servant of the Lord. He sees the cross as the means by which God accomplishes everything. He sees the ingathering of Jew and Gentile into one, one body. He sees a new heaven and a new earth. Well I don't say that you can't see all that when you're young, and that you can't see all that uh, at the beginning. I do believe this it takes real experience and real understanding and a real walk with the Lord over many years to be able to express it to be able to express it in, in such a way there's nothing puffy nothing heady nothing sentimental Nothing, forgive the word, is sloppy about Isaiah at the end. I believe the Lord's dealt with it. And, and the end is that he is peculiarly qualified of the Lord to be able to define something which, which must have moved his, 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 his spirit and soul to the very depths of his being. I think that if the prophecies of Isaiah have moved many of us almost to tears, I don't know what they must have done to the prophet himself in the days in which he prophesied. No, you see, there we are. I think all this difference can be explained by the fact that those early chapters belong uh, up to chapter 35 to the early days of his ministry and life, commencement of his ministry, Uh, chapter 36 to 39 to the later years of his ministry and from chapter 40 to 66 to the last stage of his ministry. And I think we can also point out this that the first 35 chapters deal with his own generation and dead. He was speaking to them. And the last chapters deal with the future. Very much more so. That explains a great difference, doesn't it? Of course there'll be a difference in style. There'll certainly be a difference in theology, in some ways, if you want to call it theology. And above all, there's a difference of subject, isn't there? Those first 35 chapters deal very much with judgment, you know. The last, as it's often been pointed out, deal with grace. What a difference. Judgment and grace. Well, no wonder. No wonder there's a a difference. So I think we can reasonably ascribe the whole book to Isaiah, and uh, I think we, we can therefore approximately date the book of Isaiah as something in the region of 750 B.C. to 700 B.C. Well, we haven't gone any farther. We haven't talked about the background of Isaiah, but I think it's just as well to leave that because it's so wonderful and so so full of, uh, of real help and light upon his uh, upon this prophecy that I'd prefer to leave it to next week. What a man Isaiah was and wha- how much it really teaches us the little that we've looked at this evening how how much it teaches us. You know, we too can be people who endure as seeing him who is invisible. We too can be people who do not look at the things which are seen but the things which are not seen. Isaiah was like a monument, a monument to God, like a rock in the midst of swirling tides that would have swept him off his feet certainly swept everyone else off their feet, off their feet. When you think of the reigns he lived to, first a uh, uh, so-so, quite good man, just so-so, two of them, and then an evil man, unbelievably evil, and then an unbelievably good man, and a great revival, and then ended his days in the worst and most evil reign and days of the whole history of Judah. I think there is probably a lot of truth in the old Jewish tradition that Isaiah was a martyr. All Jews believe that Isaiah was a martyr. Uh, We have this book written upon the martyrdom and the assumption of Isaiah and and it seems to be a pretty generally accredited tradition that in the days of Manasseh when he filled Jerusalem with blood from one end to the other, Isaiah because of his Unflinching testimony, had to flee for his life and hid in the hollow of a tree and was sawn asunder. So that we may well be that the scripture in Hebrews 11 that speaks of some being sawn asunder may indeed be a reference to that tradition to the end of Isaiah. An old man of 90, 80 or 90, dying for his faith. He'd seen something, seen something seen right through the whole fabric of human life and had seen the Lord and saw the Lord crucified and saw a people by the cross brought to the Lord through the cross in an ever-increasing way in the end to fulfill the very desire of God. What a ministry. Right back 2,500 years again. We're all in it today. It's rather wonderful, isn't it? Dear Lord, we pray thee now just to <coughs> take hold of these poor words, and, oh, beloved Lord, just cover them all. That which is technical, dear Lord, apply, keep in our hearts and our memories, and make it be ground for the Holy Spirit in days to come, to speak to us more fully. May we be spiritually intelligent and alive to thee, Lord. And, oh, we do cry to thee, beloved Lord, that above everything else we might learn the spiritual lesson. So, Lord, do here as we commit it now to thee, we, we, Lord, commit our weakness to thee in hearing and speaking and ask thee by thy Holy Spirit to so take over as to work it all out in our lives in the name of